This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm so really glad you're here. Today, I have a great guest. Uh, I met Paul a while ago, and Paul is the founder of the Recovery Elevator podcast, which has well over a million, approaching 2 million downloads, which is absolutely phenomenal. Paul, welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, Annie, thank you so much for having me on, on your podcast. You're like a, a, a sobriety uh, guru, in, in my opinion. So it's, it's really cool chatting with you. That's awesome. So what I love to do on these things is just sort of start with um, your story. And if you wouldn't mind just kind of taking us back to even the beginning, if you don't mind. Absolutely. And just so I don't get too far down on this, we like, took them like a three-minute, five-minute, seven-minute deal here. Yeah, as, as much detail as you want to share. I okay. think people love detail. They can relate to certain aspects. So yeah, as, as keep it going. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the first time I drank, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I've heard that common response from a lot of people. And, and pardon me, I'm going to be jumping forward, jumping back. But where I'm at right now with my research, I love recovery and I read all material that I can, including your book. I've read it. I've read it more than once. We've studied it for book club. And where I'm at right now is I have enhanced dopamine receptors, right? I don't like using the word alcoholic, but I have enhanced dopamine receptors, which means I experience alcohol differently than other people. And back to when I took that first drink, I was on to something special. I knew it from that very first moment. And talking to other non-drinkers, they're like, yeah, you know, I, I didn't like the taste. And uh, it, it was just a different experience for normal drinkers. So I don't know if it was, you know, it was genetic. Gene I was genetically predispositioned to become an alcoholic. That's what I believe. But regardless, yeah, I went down that road with these enhanced dopamine receptors. And, you know, even with my childhood, uh, I've, I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, most, most addicts, mo most people have problems with alcohol and drugs. They had childhood trauma. Annie, I can tell you that my upbringing was, couldn't have been further from the truth on, on it. Couldn't be further from that statement right there. I'm, I'm, I'm a white kid who grew up in Vail, Colorado. My parents gave me everything on a silver spoon. They did everything fantastic. And and could it be just the fact that given my genetic makeup, if I drink and when I drink, if I drink enough of it, I will become addicted to alcohol. And I think that's what happened. And so my first drink was around age 13. Like I mentioned, it was magical. It was difficult to find it at age 14 and 15. But gradually through high school, I began to drink more. I was captain of the football team. I was in student council. I was in jazz band. I was in every student council program, whatever you can do to be involved in high school and plays musicals. I got involved. I was just your average Joe in high school. And I was a normal drinker for like seven years. When I say normal drinker, it was someone, I was somebody who could take it or leave it. Never did the thought in those seven years in my first episodes with drinking that I think, man, perhaps I'm drinking too much or is this altering my life in a negative behavior? And, you know, there's a, yeah, I, I found myself being, uh, I was lapping the pace car, shall we say. I would always, I'd always like try to stay in, you know, to stay with others with my drinking. And then I said, I found myself just surpassing everybody. And, you know, so I went to college, drank like a normal drinker there, but it wasn't until 
I can pinpoint the night and it's not like a, a switch that happens, but I remember the night when I crossed that boundary from normal drinking to drinking alcoholically. And I was at that point, I was addicted to alcohol. Um, we, we were in Spain. I was running a pub crawl at the time. We came back. It was like four o'clock in the morning. And I poured myself you know, half a glass full of vodka. And I asked the others, Hey guys, it was a fun night. Do you want some more alcohol? And, and uh, they're like, Whoa, no, uh, Paul, we're, we're kind of winding down at this moment. And that was when I realized, wow, I'm finding it extremely difficult, if not impossible to stop drinking once I started. And, you know, that was a gradual transition from becoming, you know, from normal drinking to becoming addicted to alcohol and being physically and mentally and spiritually addicted to the drug called alcohol. And so I, I like I mentioned, I absolutely loved it. And I, I wanted to chase that party, chase that feeling. And it took me all the way to Spain where I bought a bar. And as you can imagine, somebody who was well on their well on the way to becoming an alcoholic, going to a foreign country and buying a bar. I mean, that's a recipe for a dumpster fire just waiting to happen. And Andy, that's exactly what happened. I made the least of that situation. It was the best and the worst time of my life. But surely, any alcohol could not have been the problem. I was over the age of 21. Everybody around me was drinking. I was drinking the same amounts as everybody else. So surely alcohol cannot be the problem. Um, in, in fact, last year I did a TEDx talk with that same title uh, that I, I feel like I've been duped by alcohol. Um, we all hear that crack, cocaine, heroin, don't touch that stuff. Crystal meth, don't even think about it because we know it could be detrimental harm to your body will happen quickly. But with alcohol, you see it on TV, in the books, in the movies, you're green light as long as you're age 21 and up. Um, and so I felt like I was duped by alcohol because slowly, but gradually I, I became addicted to it. And, you know, I, I went to so many doctors and therapists and, and dealt with depression, dealt with anxiety, dealt with ADHD. I mean, and it couldn't have been the alcohol. And so after Spain, I tried the geographical cure, hoping that I was going to leave my alcohol in on the Iberic Peninsula, Spain, come back to Colorado, moved in with my parents around age 25, 26. And guess what followed me, Annie? It, it, it was the drinking. It was the drinking. And, uh, and I still drank. Um, yeah, I wasn't quite drinking at, at the clip of somebody who owned a bar. It wasn't like my job anymore to be closing down the bar, bar at 4 or 5 a.m. with customers drinking. But um, it, was, it was more of like the self-searching, uh-oh, something's wrong with me. It can't be alcohol. Oh, I think I need a graduate degree. So I tried the, the geographical cure again. I went to University of Washington, got a grad school degree, moved up there in Seattle. And that's where I started to put the pieces in play. I started to think, wait a second, is the alcohol an issue here? And where I'm at right now, um, that's the answer. If you're listening to this right now and, and you're wondering, man, maybe, maybe I have a problem with alcohol. It's surprisingly simple, but everybody has to go through this difficult, tenuous task of figuring out, am I an alcoholic? Again, I've broken up with that word. I use the word EDR, enhanced dopamine receptors, but it's the simple. If you've ever asked yourself, do I have a problem with alcohol? That's probably the answer is yes, because I've asked my brother, who's a normal drinker. I said, hey, Marco, his name's Mark. Have you ever asked yourself, do you wonder if you have a problem with alcohol? He's like, no. No, I've never, never asked myself that. And, and that's kind of the thing. Normal drinkers don't ask themselves that question. So I started to ask myself these questions. This was in 2009. Um, and I was like, dude, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going to quit drinking for a month on January 1st, 2010. And that's what I did. I only wanted to go for 30 days. It, it, it was hard. It was hard. There were physical cravings. 
it was, it was, it was difficult. Um, but I found out at, at like day 20, I was like, whoa, there was this huge fog in my life that's slowly starting to lift. Face, still fat, not quite as fat as it was three weeks ago. I'm going to ride this thing out. And so I went February without alcohol. I went, I went March and I actually lasted two and a half years without alcohol. And <laughs> you're looking back, uh, it, it, it's a tremendous accomplishment. I, I, I need to be cognizant of, of not uh, being too hard on myself and self-loathing is still something in a life without alcohol that I, that I need to address. But looking back at myself, like it's like, oh, it's cute, Paul. You didn't really stand much of a chance um, with long-term sobriety is because I did it alone. I did it on willpower. And I viewed a life without alcohol strictly as a sacrifice and not an opportunity. And the, the most important things in, in sobriety are, are one to have that mindset that sobriety is an opportunity. And number two, you can't do it alone. You have to surround yourself with other like-minded individuals. Now that is not a sentence to AA or 12 step rooms. Um, I've been in, I've been out. I currently have a sponsor. I love the 12 step recovery community, but that's not necessarily what that means. It means you have to surround yourself with other people who don't drink, but because sim simply just going out at night to nightclubs, to bars, to weddings, to functions with the same people, and it, you know, that's, it's possible to do that if they're fully up to speed of what's going on. Because eventually, the unconscious mind, which responds a third of a second faster than the conscious mind. Uh, where did I learn that one from? I'm holding up your book right now. Annie. That's exactly <laughs> nice. where I learned that from. <laughs> I, I, I use that like it's my own. Um, but awesome. uh, eventually, what happens is the, your unconscious mind will just answer the question. Hey, you want to drink? Yes, I do. And you're like, holy crap what happened? I just said yes to a drink. And the unconscious mind takes a beating if we don't address sobriety. And it takes a beating through TV ads, through Facebook, social media ads, on, on, and, and on TV shows everywhere. And if we're not addressing that by surrounding ourselves with other like-minded individuals and kind of combat, combating the beating that our unconscious mind takes, it's only a matter of time. And I had to find that out several, several times. And and, and things got pretty bad in 2014, Annie. Um, I had, I, I had a DUI, which I welcomed. I was driving to work and uh, it was like two 30 afternoon driving to work, got a DUI, spent the night in a, uh, a suicide proof jail cell in the park County jail, Livingston, Montana. And I welcomed it. I was like, finally, it doesn't get any worse than this. It doesn't. I it, just the feeling the anguish waking up with just like a, a suicide proof vest on, is absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. And I welcomed it. I said, finally, this is my sobriety date. Well, <laughs> I had made plenty of promises like that to myself in the past. And the cognitive dissonance of this disease called alcoholism is absolutely exhausting. Is where you tell yourself in the morning, I'm done drinking for good. And then later that night, not only was I drinking, but I was hammered. You know, so after the DUI, I was sober. I stayed sober for think a week or two, but I was not only drinking again, but I was drunk and driving again with a broken taillight. And I'm a smart guy, I'd like to think. And I know what's going to happen. The first UI in the state of Montana is a slap on the wrist. The second one, that's where they throw the book at you. That's where things get a lot more severe. And, and I wasn't it. Um, and finally, I was DJing a wedding every and every time during cocktail hour, a waiter or waitress would come by with a wine tray. I took a glass of wine. I was just, I was drinking on the job at DJing a wedding. I was drunk. And 
it was a culmination of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I cannot beat this. And I did a smart thing, Annie. I finally reached out. Um, I had somebody cover the wedding. Another DJ was in the area. I had a friend come pick me up and I made the decision to go to rehab. Now I was not able to get in touch with my parents until um, probably three hours after that moment. But, and I didn't end up going to rehab, but that's the gift of desperation and which I was given that gift of desperation hundreds of times, Annie, it's just like everything. Oh, bad hangover. A gift of desperation. Thank you. But this one was different. I was fully defeated. I was completely beaten by this drug called alcohol. And when I did get a hold of my parents, they're like, what's wrong, Paul? Sorry, we missed 84 missed calls from you. What's going on? I'm like, you know what? Let me, I'll, I'll give you a call tomorrow morning. And something was different the next day where I, I, I knew that I couldn't beat this. And the thought of finding a way to drink normally had completely evaporated because I'd, I'd done them all. And, and Andy, I asked the question on the podcast, did you ever limit the amount of drinks, put rules in the place? Like I've done them all. And I'm looking at my episode list. I'm at episode 165 right now. I've asked that question 165 times and not once have I heard a success story for the long term. Some of these stories work for a week, two weeks, maybe even a month, but there, it, it just doesn't work. And so I had to exhaust all those rules, those plans, those ingenious plans before coming up to the, the conclusion like, man, I just got my ass kicked for the 5,000th time by alcohol. Am I going to get back up in that ring or not? And I decided not to, which is kind of contradictory to, I have an athletics background of like, oh, no pain, no gain, just, just work harder, keep fighting. You know, I'd applied that mentality to getting sober and that doesn't work out very well. And so, you know, September, that was not my sobriety date. It was four days later, but I remember pouring out, had half of a beer and I poured it out uh, that we were camping in the beautiful mountains uh, in, near Big Sky, Montana. And I knew if I was going to stay, that I was just going to get back into that perpetual cycle of addiction. So I dumped it out and I left the camping trip in the first month, first several months of sobriety. It's about doing things you don't want to do. It's, it's, it's not that simple. No, it, it's that simple as we've tried all the easy ways out. We've tried all the, you know, the quick fixes, this and that, but it, it's hard. And, and I do a lot of things I didn't want to do. And, and about two months of sobriety, in about November, and this is kind of how the podcast came in, in into account is I was walking to an AA meeting and I was ducking and diving behind trees due to the stigma. And the stigma, in my opinion, is just as dangerous, if not more dangerous than alcohol itself, Annie. And that's why I think you're such a rock star in this space is yeah, I don't, your work to combat the stigma is, is incredible. So thank you for that. And so two things came to mind when I was going to this AA meeting. Number one, I was busy right? I was looking at my watch. I'm like, do I really have time for this? Yeah. And like, you know, my addiction will start to lie to me in my own voice. And at two months, it almost had me. I was walking this meeting and I was like, first off, I was like, I don't have time for this. I'm good. I've got this. I've been sober for 60 days. And those are the three most dangerous words, in my opinion, that an alcohol can say is I got this. Just cue relapse, just a matter of time after that. If you say those words, you're toast. And so I was like, man, I was like, okay, I'm too busy for this. And number two, I was like, I was like, I don't want my friends to see me, you know, uh, who's gonna, they're going to see me going to this meeting. And number three, this light bulb, I don't know if it was divine moment went off. It was, I was like, whoa, I'm going to drink again. And I knew that I was, oh, I had a failed suicide attempt in 2014. Kind of skipped over that one. Sorry about that. But I knew at that moment that if I drank again, it was only a matter of time 
before the vicious cycle of addiction would grab hold of me and probably would end in suicide. And so I was like, this is total BS, total bullshit that the stigma surrounding drugs and alcohol is just as strong as the drug itself. And so I decided to create a podcast, number one, to combat the stigma. If anybody listened, great. I didn't really think anybody would. I knew I would listen or my parents would listen. And, and that's about it. But if I helped a couple of people along the way and I stayed sober, then huge win. And, and what's happened after that is it's been a wild ride and it's been, it's been incredible. And, it, and also I needed more accountability. Like I, like I said, I cannot do this alone. And, and I, we've, I've got private recovery groups and I'm doing the podcast. It's, it's not long after people come out to their most, to the people close to them in life. So this can be their spouse, their roommates, their best friends, their brothers, sisters, their families, their mom and dads. But keeping this stuff secret, it, 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 we don't give ourselves our best chances of, of beating alcohol. And it wasn't by coincidence. I told my brother and my mom and dad three months before my sobriety date, I told my seven best friends at my fantasy football draft in Denver, Colorado in 2014, seven best friends, which is the hardest text message that I've ever sent out. We think, Annie, that uh, the planets are going to fall out of orbit when we come out and say, hey, guys, I don't drink anymore. We do. We think our friends are going to leave and run for the hills. But here's the deal. If they're friends, if they're true friends, they won't. They'll want the best for you. And I found out that I had seven amazing friends in my life, including my brothers in that league. And they're all like, oh, my God, what can we do to help? And so this is an amazing friend filter. Sobriety is. It's, amazing, it's an amazing dating filter. And so as soon as you... As soon as you come out with that and you start to recruit people to be on your recovery team, then, then I had a chance and then I had a chance. Um, but I did, like I said, looking back from the first two and a half years of sobriety, doing this alone, I'm like, Oh, you poor soul. We, we gave, we gave it our all, but uh, I'm just actually pretty impressive. I made it that far. And yeah, so the podcast, like you mentioned earlier, it's almost a 2 million downloads, which is in, it's a, uh, that's a lot for a podcast. It's, it, that's yeah. a lot. Um, it's, we're getting sponsors now and we're doing in-person meetups where we did a retreat in Dallas. We did a retreat in Bozeman. We're doing one in Peru this coming October and we're at 21 out of 25 people signed up. We're doing volunteer work. We're doing the Inca trail, doing Machu Picchu, all that jazz. And I can't get enough of these meetups. Like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life because it's so much fun meeting up with 10, 15, 20 or 30 people with 30 people in Bozeman. And within like four hours, the bonding that has taken place because we have such we have something that's so communal is is the alcoholism component it's there these things are so much fun and i'm almost envious of people who don't get to attend these retreats uh, it's it's just a blast so yeah i mean there's plenty of offshoots in my story any but after doing the podcast and i'm i'm having i have an interview later today when i'm, I'm gonna ask the same question my story is no different than anybody else all of our stories are, are, are remarkably similar if I would try to fight this alone, we think the problems with ourselves, but in reality, there's, there's nothing wrong with me, Annie. There's nothing wrong with anybody who becomes addicted to alcohol. It's, we're kind of duped by it. And the reason why I love your book so much is it lays it out in very digestible format in the black and white manner. Uh, and we've done, we do book club. Yeah. A book club where we actually read the book <laughs> at these private groups. And uh, we've done your book twice. And Annie, uh, the first time we did it, you were actually part of the webinar. And so thank you for joining us. And uh, I will do your book a third time. It's just, just a matter of time. So it's, it's really neat. Um, and that's kind of the story in a nutshell. So yeah. That's great. So I have a bunch of sort of follow-up questions. Um, and so 
first of all, and, and I just love to debate this, and I know we know each other well enough that we can, but I, I love all the different approaches. I think that's so what's needed. And I agree with you so much on the stigma of just overcoming that and everybody kind of coming together. But something you said over and over and over again that I want to have a discussion about is this idea that um, people can drink alcohol normally. Because I, according to the research I've done, have a very firm belief that any human, if they are exposed to the right level of alcohol and the right emotional circumstances, will become addicted. And so it's not really a segregation between normal drinkers and people with problems. And, and you even said, like, there's nothing wrong with me. Like, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I don't think there's anything wrong with anyone of us. I, I do believe that there, you know, there are some genetic markers, certainly. But I also think that, you know, according to the science and the studies that I've seen, when they give, you know, mice alcohol, all of them become addicted when they're force fed it over a period of time. Interesting side note, they won't drink it at all. They'll turn their noses up at it voluntarily. So like, it's not natural for them to drink it. Of course, they're not probably giving them like Malibu and Coke. They're probably giving them straight alcohol. But um, I just love to hear your thoughts on that because you kept saying it and I just was really curious sort of where that formed for you that there's sort of Paul over here and then there's normal drinkers over here because it does differ kind of from what I've learned, I guess. Yeah, Annie, and at this point of the podcast, I will agree to agree with you. <laughs> so, and you're right, because I was saying, I'm like, well, there's nothing wrong with me, but then there's normal drinkers and there's me, there's a difference. And I actually agree with you 100%. And the normal drinker is kind of just a phrase that I say. And it's, and, and I love that part in your book where you talk about, look, if anybody drinks enough alcohol, it's only amount of time before they become addicted. And let's take a look at male pattern baldness. So thank goodness. Like I, I've, I've been blessed with a couple things genetically, a couple things not genetically, but I'm probably not going to go bald within my lifetime. And, but however, if I were to live to be 500 years old, every male would have no hair. Like I will go bald. It's just a matter of time. I will probably go to go bald at age 412. Well, I've got friends that went bald at age 21. And that's where I, I like your argument and I agree with you hundred percent is I think it's our genetic makeup and our environment that says when we become addicted to alcohol and, and, and it, it, like what age. And it's interesting when I got my DUI, this was so funny, Annie, I was the only person in the class because at that point I had been sober and I had, I was working on my podcast and I was the only person in the class who gave a shit out of like 30 of us, I was raising my hand and the guy's like, yeah, the guy again with his seventh question today, who doesn't quite get the fact that we're just checking a court, you know, a court requirement off. But that was their method of teaching also was that every will, everybody will become an alcoholic if or addicted to alcohol, if they drink enough alcohol and it's the environment will load the gun and your genetics will pull the trigger. Maybe I said that opposite, but I do agree with you on that. I do agree with you on that. Um, and, yeah. And tell me, and there was a study you read about that, right? Yeah. So all, um, I think they're in my books actually, but I, I definitely have seen that, um, if they, the fact that alcohol itself is addictive is there's no debate there. Nobody's debating that fact. And so when they were giving it to mice over, um, a period of time, they all wanted more alcohol. They all short, showed addictive tendencies to alcohol. So it was 
not necessarily that there was some mice that were and some mice that weren't. And I think this is where our culture and our society and even a little bit of where the stigma comes from is because we don't say that about any other thing, right? You don't have normal smokers who can just smoke a few cigarettes and then, you know, cigarette-aholics who can <laughs> go crazy and they give themselves love cancer. You don't have this even for heroin or the harder drugs where, you know, everybody pretty much accepts if, if you do heroin a lot over a long period of time, you're going to become addicted. But I think where this really masks itself, and it's interesting because I think you even talked about your brother, and I have lots of friends who we could say drink normally, um, but there's, there's, when I've really dug into their relation, when I become prying with them, which I have done, and I really dig into it, there's often something that's keeping them at levels that are not triggering addiction. And first of all, often, almost all addiction ends up being triggered when we are drinking for something that's hurting inside of us. So when we're drinking for some sort of self-medication. So, you know, if you're not comfortable in your own skin at 13 and you have a drink, that drink is going to numb those uncomfortable 10-year-old who's like all stars and rainbows. They're going to have a drink and they're going to feel a little bit of a buzz and it's not going to be a big deal, right? Um, equally, there's other things. Like I have a friend who she just can't afford it. Like she loves dessert. She loves drinks. She chooses dessert. And, and that's just been her thing. She's like, I know if I had more money, I'd probably drink more and it'd probably be dangerous. And so almost everybody who I've seen who's been quote a normal drinker, when I really start to ask them, they have, or religious beliefs where they're very like, oh, I can't have more than two or three drinks. It's just bad, bad people. You know, they have something that's keeping them at levels where the addiction really doesn't, doesn't kick in. And most often, it's that emotional thing. You know, if you're completely socially drinking and it's not every night, then alcohol is it's much slower than other drugs to become addictive, but it's so much like it's, it's so addictive then then alcohols become across every study, hands down, no argument, the most destructive drug in our entire society. So yeah, I love that conversation and um, it's cool just to have it because I think for listeners, there's such a tendency to be like, there's something wrong with me. And, and more than anything, I want people to know, like you just said, Paul, like there's nothing wrong with us. Like there's nothing wrong with you. Um, alcohol is addictive and there's something wrong with society when we're saying that that's a normal thing to be able to drink normally, a normal addictive substance. And then something's wrong with, you know, I mean, it would be like you said, like <laughs> something wrong with you because you became bald or because you became diabetic or whatever the case is, right? So it's really cool. Um, I did have a follow, a few follow-up questions. Like one thing that I'd love to get to the root of how it feels is because I think people relate to it so much, but this feeling, and maybe you could talk a little bit about the 2014 suicide thing that you skipped over and see if these are related, but what does it feel like to be drinking when you don't want to be drinking anymore? Like, yeah. I heard somebody describe addiction as is we can't get enough of what we don't want. And you hear that and you're like, the that makes no sense. And, but I lived it. I lived it. I know a lot of people can actually resonate with that is in, there was a long time in my life, about seven years when I drank to feel good. And that transitions is I drank to feel normal. Um, and that happens, that happens before we know it. That we don't, we're not aware we're going down this pendulum or down the slope. And then just like you mentioned, my brother's on that same slope. 
he's just way higher up on that slope. And all the people I drank with in college, my best friends, they're also on that slope. But sometimes like family of kids and that pulls them out of that slope and they go down it slower. Um, but what was it like to live? And, and it, so it's just, it was exhausting. And it was absolutely exhausting. And, and you know, most people I read, I forget why I read this stat that most alcoholics, when they, when they commit suicide, they're sober. They're, they're not under the influence because that's the drug that can make them feel normal. And I had, uh, I had gone to my psychiatrist that day and she had somebody filling in for her and I was prescribed 20 benzodiazepines. I think it was diazepam. Benzo is like Valium or Xanax or Alprazolam, which can be argued at times it's alcohol on a pill. And I only wanted like two or three just to get me a couple of days of sobriety, which is, hey, I mean, even that thinking is asinine, but I ended up getting 20. And so when I had a failed suicide attempt, it wasn't under the influence of alcohol, but I was able to be sober enough to realize how dangerous of a beast alcohol was and I couldn't beat it. Um, and so I took like seven, like, no, it was a, the, the rest of these are 17 or 15 of, of the pills and it, I mean, it, it didn't work. And that's, you just get to a point, you get, you get to a point and it just seems hopeless. And you've had, and you've had hundreds of day ones. And after a while, like the self-loathing creeps up too, because you make the same promise to yourself every day. Say, I'm, I'm done drinking. I, I'm done forever. Oh yeah. DUI. Uh, great. Thank you. Thank you. This is what's finally going to spur me into sobriety. But after none of it works, God, you just hit this moment where you, you, you break. But like I mentioned, like I, I was all doing this alone. Uh, I, I was going to AA meetings at the time and, and did, you know, like dabbling with it, but I still, you know, looking back, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I, I, I gosh, I don't know, but I can tell you it's just absolutely exhausting. And, and the people that I have on my podcast is that's a similar story. I'll say, what was your bottom? Like, well, there's a lot of really bad, bad memories, bad moments, but the end of the day just sick and tired of being sick and tired it's exhausting yeah for sure um it's so yeah it's just so heartbreaking because i think that to be stuck in that place and it's really hard to comprehend when you haven't been in that place of doing something you no longer want to be doing it's it's as if something else has moved in and is calling the shots and it's very alienating and disorienting because you thought you're in control of your own life and your decisions and you certainly don't feel like that anymore because you know if you were you'd be making different decisions um and then the first response that we have is to blame ourselves for it you know and not necessarily like you said to look at the alcohol oh wait the alcohol is the problem no we we just tend to go and, and then we do this with everything in all walks of life we say oh i must be the problem you know and if we can just flip that and say wait a second I haven't been the problem in other areas. Let me just see what else could be the problem. I think it's a really profound exercise. One thing you said early on that I really like is this idea of enhanced dopamine receptors. And I think that perfectly explains why you needed alcohol eventually just to feel normal. So um, the study about the mice, I believe it was in a program called The Addictive Brain by Thad A. Polk. And he also has this thing about dopamine and what happens is if you, if you, so that first drink, you know, you respond to it in, in an enhanced way. It's like, oh yes, that's amazing. But then you keep drinking, keep drinking, keep drinking. What your brain actually will do is it will remove dopamine receptors because it can't handle 
all of that stimulus, right? And then over time, you need to drink more and more and more to just enhance, like to, because you have fewer dopamine receptors over time. And then eventually, you have, you know, such a change in your ability to receive dopamine that you don't feel normal without a drink. You, you need a drink just to feel normal. And then eventually, where the suicide comes in is that even that drink will not pick you up. It won't let you feel normal because your brain changes so much protecting itself saying, no, no, too much, too much, too much, that it actually changes how it can receive, you know, the artificial stimulation that alcohol comes. So I think that's just, I think it's really, really intuitive of you and very fascinating conversation actually. Yeah, a lot of us reach the point, I've heard this on my podcast often, is where the alcohol stopped working, which is so hard for us because we have a relationship with alcohol like it's a pet, like it's a loved one, a spouse. For me, alcohol is my best friend. Alcohol made me funnier, better looking, et cetera. Every, everything was better with it. And then slowly it turns back on me and it stopped working, like you said. And there's a scientific description of why it stops working. And you get, it's a pretty perilous moment in, in an alcoholic's life. And you can, I hate to say it, Annie, like a lot of people don't collect 200 as they pass go as lame, um, but you get the point, right? Like I'm one of the lucky ones to be on a podcast with you right now. Unfortunately, I'm one of the lucky ones, which means I've, unfortunately there's, there's so many more out there that don't get the help they need. And this was, a, there was in, that, in that same summer, 2014, I was at a speaker meeting. And I was listening to say this gal up there saying, why me? Why did I have to become addicted to alcohol? Why did my life you know, go down this direction? And I'm like, preach on sister. I hear you loud and clear. And then she, she switched it. She switched it. She goes, why me? Why am I up here speaking with you today? Why me? Why am I the one that has over a year of sobriety? And I look up there. I'm like, dang it. <laughs> She's good. <laughs> because that's exactly what it is. Why me? Why me? I mean, I'm part of a small recovery community here in Bozeman, Montana. And it seems like once a month, somebody's no longer with us. And there's so many people that need help and don't get it. Um, so I'm one of the lucky ones. So I'm one of the lucky ones. And it's, it's pretty cool stuff right now is happening in my life because <laughs> I have EDR, <laughs> I have enhanced dopamine receptors, or I was addicted to alcohol at one point. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I love that perspective. And honestly, it's amazing what all can open up and change once you do kind of overcome this one thing. And again, like you say, with the community, with the support, with the right approach, um, you, the approach that works for you individually, which is what I mean by the right approach. Um, so I have two more questions for you, Paul. First of all, and very importantly, where can people find you? So find your podcast if they want to know more about the retreats or anything else you do, where can people find you? Absolutely. So it's recoveryelevator.com. You can listen to the podcast there. You can find information about our retreat. It's this, this October, 2018, October 13th to the 23rd. It's in Peru. You can also go to iTunes and just search Recovery Elevator Podcast. Okay, that's awesome. And then this is a question that I ask everybody at the end of the show. But if you could go back in time, you know, to the Paul that was the Paul that was in Spain or the Paul that was um, coming back and getting his graduate degree or the Paul that was taking those 17 benzos, like what would you tell him about, you know, how would you give him hope and encouragement about what life is like now? 
God, Annie, I'm looking at my sheet right now that I ask interviewees and that question is on that sheet. It says, what advice would you give to your younger self? And I've gone back and forth on this answer so many times. Part of me would go back in time and I'd, I'd hold up uh, this book called uh, This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol. Oh, by Annie Grace. I would say, have a seat. We're going to read this together. Or I'd go back and say, here's a bottle. Hurry up and drink up. Um, they're two conf totally conflicting answers, Annie, because one of them is saying, like, look, let's, knowledge is power. If you do something with that knowledge, we can stop this before it gets to a failed suicide attempt. At, from what I Googled and have chatted with doctors, it should have been a successful suicide attempt. But at the same time, I wasn't ready at that moment. And if I, age 17, with future Paul, who still has that good hairline, um, then I probably wouldn't have quit because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. And that's where I would say, okay, well, if you're not ready, then hurry up so we can deal with this in our early 20s instead of our early 30s. Mm -hmm. So gosh, it's, it's kind of your job to come up with good questions, but good question. Well, it's really interesting because it is, you know, get off the train if you can, but if you can't, then just like get it done soon so that you can enjoy the rest of your life because it really is so much better once you kind of wake up. I mean, for me, and I know that I say this all the time, but the amount of just joy that I have in my life and peace really that I have in my life now compared to before where I just was like frantic, you know, and, and unhappy and putting so many things in my life, alcohol included, to just be busy and distract from myself. And now it's, it's a whole different ballgame. So I think that's, that's really actually pretty profound. I think either, you know, do it and do it, go for it so that you can hurry up and get on this side because it's way better here or just try and get off the train sooner. You know, those are, that's a really cool answer. Yeah. And I mean, before the part, I, I just got to say the, the, the reason I am continuously behind this microphone is for the stigma and what you have done uh, has just been profound. It, it's a, uh, it, it was a game changer. And you've probably heard it before. And um, so thank you for what you've done because you've done the same thing. I'm sure people read your book and be like, Oh my God, there's nothing wrong with me. Alcohol is shit. <laughs> and that's a phrase I use a lot lately. It's just like alcohol is shit. It's ethanol with a couple molecules added to make it palatable. It's total right. shit. It's total poison. If you drink enough of it, you will die. It's, right. That's it's poison. So thank you, Annie, for, for doing what you do. And it's oh. so cool. Your success with, I, I, I go uh, on Amazon. It's like the number one book in the, in the category of alcoholism, which doesn't surprise me. I've got like 40 to 50 recovery books on my, on my shelf. And here's the one that you, it has the most post-it notes and stuff. And anyways, I love your book. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. That's awesome. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for being on here. It's such an inspiration. And I, I don't know, every story that I hear and every podcast that I do, I learn, I learn new stuff. I think from you today, um, one of the things that you said that really stood out to me was that we have to stop viewing this as a sacrifice and we have to view it as an opportunity. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, it's, that was a game changer for me too. It's just because wow. if you're viewing it as a sacrifice, you're going off willpower and that will eventually exhaust itself and you'll drink. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Andy, for having me. It was a pleasure. 
This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word.